So there's three verses way back in the Old Testament in Genesis about this man named Melchizedek. And it's really not even about him. It's about Abraham. The story in that section of Genesis is all about Abraham. But then uh, there's this mention of this guy named Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem at the time. And it mentions him in the context of the story where Abraham had to go rescue his nephew Lot. So all these kings had gone out to battle, nine different kings, nine different cities had gone out to battle at war, and Lot's where he lived, his king lost, and he was taken captive, and so Abraham found out about it, and because it's his nephew, he had to go rescue him. I don't know if you know a whole lot about the story of Abraham and Lot, but um, I don't even know what Lot's name means in Hebrew, but I'm pretty sure he was named that way because he made a lot of bad decisions and got in a lot of trouble and needed a lot of help. That seems like pretty much his story. And so... um, Abraham has gone and rescued him, and he's coming back from rescuing him, and these two kings come out to meet him. The king of Sodom comes out and meets him, and he just wants his stuff back, so he's really not a big part of the story. And then the king of Salem is also meeting Abraham, and the king of Salem, his name's Melchizedek, and he uh, brings bread and wine to Abraham, and then he blesses Abraham. He gives him a blessing, offers him a blessing, and then Abraham responds by giving him a tenth of everything. And then Melchizedek exits the scene, and we don't, we don't hear from him. It's, it's just a very random story. It's three verses that tell the story about this random king, Melchizedek, and we don't know where he came from, and we don't know where he goes. And it's just kind of like, okay, well, I don't need to pay attention to that. It doesn't seem important because it's the story of Abraham. And then about a 1,000 years later, David's writing a psalm, and he writes Psalm 110, and he says, oh, and the Messiah's coming. And he's going to be a a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And you're like, who? Who are we talking about here? And he's like, yeah, he's going to to be a priest just like Melchizedek. So, you know, get to concordance and like, well, who's he talking about? Oh, this is that guy, the three verses in Genesis 14. That's who we're talking about. But he says the Messiah is going to be kind of like Melchizedek. And about a thousand years after that, give or take, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews writes, and he starts talking about Melchizedek and pointing him to Jesus. In fact, it's interesting because we've already mentioned him before. In Hebrews chapter 5, he says, hey, Jesus is the priest, eternal priest, in the order of Melchizedek. And then it's like he stops while he's writing and he says, but you guys, hold on, you guys can't handle that. You are not ready for that. And he's talking to this audience he was writing this letter to, and he's like, you guys are still, spiritually, you're still infants. You're, you're not ready for solid food. You're still drinking milk. And you're not ready because this Melchizedek guy, he's kind of confusing. And so he just pauses the whole conversation. And at the end of chapter 6, he brings him back in. And in chapter 7, he talks talks a whole lot about Melchizedek, and it's almost like he says, yeah, we, we're going to have to talk about it at some point. I can't wait forever. So he brings him back into the conversation. And it's, it's really weird because what, some of the things he says are kind of confusing on the surface. I mean, they, they really are. And so you kind of look at that, and you're like, what in the world are we doing? And, and maybe you're asking that right now because you're like, why are we talking about this? This is, this is just so you'll know. At, at Cross Point Community Church, if you're new here, we just, we just go through the books of the Bible verse by verse, kind of expositional preaching, and we're in a study of Hebrews right now, and Hebrews 7 is where we are today. And the most of the chapter is really talking about this guy named Melchizedek. And I know that you're thinking, well, that's kind of a weird place to start or weird place to be on Easter Sunday. And just so you know, I knew it was Easter. I knew it was coming, all right? I, I know how to, uh, how to tell, like everybody else, that Easter is always the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. I know that, right? Like everybody does. But why would you do something that 
Even the writer of Hebrews says, this is kind of confusing. Why would you do that on Easter? That's not the plan. That doesn't seem like a good plan at all. Let me take a confusing subject and bring it into Sunday morning on Easter when you probably got a lot of visitors. That'll be great, right? That's not the practice. That's not the plan. That's not what we normally do around here. But, well, here we go. So, I was thinking about this this week. And I was thinking about, if you talk about Melchizedek, even, even scholars will go, oh, yes, that's a very interesting story. He's, he's a very interesting character. And what I think they mean by that is he's very mysterious. I don't really know what that story is all about. I don't know why they make, the New Testament makes a big deal about him, why Hebrews makes such a big deal about him. It's just three verses randomly. And so I was thinking about that, and then it made me think of something. Like, I don't know if you remember these commercials that were the most interesting man in the world commercials. And they just had this random guy, and he's doing all these crazy things, and they just kept giving these weird, weird facts about him. They said, he is the most interesting man in the world. And I, I don't know, I just connected it somehow, and I thought, Melchizedek, that's what he is. He is the most mysterious man in the Old Testament. And so I thought, maybe we should just think about that for a second. He's so mysterious that some think he was an angel, or even the pre-incarnate Christ, but he was really just a man, or was he? He was known as the King of Righteousness, the King of Salem, and the Priest of the Most High God, but he still probably had more free time than you do. In a book that obsesses over genealogies, he has no father or mother. When asked for his birth date, his answer is not applicable. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> when all the other kings of Canaan went to war, he stayed at home so it would be a fair fight. He once met Abraham, the man chosen by God to be the father of a nation, and Abraham gave him a tenth of his possessions. He didn't even have to ask. It's customary for someone who is superior to bless someone who is inferior, so he blesses everyone he meets, even Father Abraham. He doesn't often hand out bread and wine, but when he does, he gives it to a patriarch. He is Melchizedek, the most mysterious man in the Old Testament. I'm just, just trying. So. It, kids, if you're in here and you can see the picture that Mr. Watkins drew of what he thought Mel, Melchizedek looked like, I would love to see your pictures. I've been collecting them in all the services. If you draw me a picture of Melchizedek, I would love to see that. So bring it to me after the service. I'd, I'd love to know if he's redheaded like some people have indicated he was. So this, this guy is so mysterious. There's so much confusion. Like, what, what is the guy in Hebrew, what is the writer of Hebrews talking about with this Melchizedek idea? And so here's, here's what I think will help us today. Let's just talk about the main idea here. Let's talk about the main point of why he's bringing Melchizedek into the story. And here it is. Jesus is the true and greater Melchizedek. That, that's what he's doing. It's not really about Melchizedek because none of the stories really are about anybody other than Jesus. All the Old Testament, all the heroes in the Old Testament, all the stories in the Old Testament, what they do is they point us to Jesus. They point us to a Messiah who's going to come. So they're just shadows of the real hero. And even a story like Melchizedek's with just three verses randomly in Genesis chapter 14, even that story is just pointing us to Jesus. And so here's what he's trying to say is, hey, that Melchizedek guy, there's a lot of things about him that you haven't thought about, but it's really just him pointing to Jesus. 
In fact, when he starts this conversation or this discussion in Hebrews chapter 7 and verses 1 through 3, I want you to see what he says because it's all pointing to Jesus as the true and greater Melchizedek. He says, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So he says these things, like, what is he talking about? But here's the deal. He's pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is true and greater Melchizedek. So what do we learn about Jesus from that? Here's a, here's a few things. First, Jesus is both a king and a priest. He is, Jesus, a king and a priest, just like Melchizedek was. He's king of Salem. That's, that's one of his titles. Uh, king of Salem, most likely that's king of Jerusalem. It's just another way to say Jerusalem. It's a shortened version of it. Jerusalem. But he's also the, the priest of the Most High God. This is an unusual thing for him to be king and priest of the Most High God at the same time, that, that, that wasn't something you had seen before. And so it's, it's a new thing. The fact that in Canaan, most of the other nations, other cities, other kingdoms, they worship false gods. And he's known as this priest of the Most High God. That makes him unusual. It makes him stand out. But it's this idea that he was king and priest at the same time. But that's pointing us to Jesus, who is the king of kings. He rules over the earth. He created it. He rules over the world. He's, everything's under his control, and he rules over our hearts. Those of us who put our faith in him, he rules us as our king. We, we swear allegiance to him and follow him as a king, and he's our priest. He's the one perfect priest. He's the great high priest who has made a way for us to God. He's given us access to God. A priest goes between people and God, makes sacrifices for people on behalf of people for God. He, he, he tried to mediate the relationship, and Jesus is the great high priest. He's the ultimate priest, and he makes that relationship. He brings us into a right relationship with God, and so he's a king and a priest. And we see that all throughout Scripture of the prophecies telling that he's going to be that way, and then Jesus shows up, and that's who he is. Melchizedek meets Abraham, the father of faith, the patriarch, and Melchizedek blesses him. And one of the things the writer of Hebrews says is that, hey, this is the custom. Somebody who's inferior is always blessed by the per person who's superior. And so you think, Abraham, well, he's, he's the man. Like, he's, the whole story's about Abraham. But when he meets Melchizedek, Melchizedek blesses him. He's obviously the superior in that situation. And here's what it's telling us about Jesus, is that Jesus blesses us. Jesus provides the ultimate blessing for us. For, for those of us who are following Jesus, putting our faith and trust in Jesus, he's promised to bless us. The, the whole book of Hebrews is teaching us that. That's all, the whole book of Hebrews is saying over and over again, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. Because we believe lies that something else will satisfy us. We drift away from that truth. We start trying to find our value and our meaning and our purpose and fulfillment in something that's not God. We, we, we walk away from him, and the writer of Hebrews keeps reminding us and pointing us back, no, 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 stop, Jesus is better. Follow him, trust him, put your faith in him, value him, worship him. Don't do that. Like those things will never satisfy you. And so the blessing that God is offering us, the, the blessing that you and I are all looking for, 
the life of blessing that we're looking for, the life of fulfillment, satisfaction, and joy, and purpose, and meaning, everything you're looking for, here's the deal. It's only found in Jesus. It's absolutely only found in Jesus. Everything else is a counterfeit. Everything else is a dead end. Everything else is a lie. It's only found in him. And so he promises to bless us. He, as the, the greatest of all time, the king of kings, he's, he gives us his blessing. It doesn't mean he takes our problems away or makes life perfect and, and, and problem-free. It just means that he promises to bless us in the midst of it, that he guides us through every single thing. There's no circumstance, there's no situation where he can't get us through it. He promises to never leave us and forsake us. He is the one who brings the blessing that we're looking for. And when we turn to him, we put our faith in him, we find the life of blessing that he's promised in every situation, he gives us peace. He gives us comfort. No matter what it is, he's always with us. He blesses us. The story is really about Jesus. And Jesus is also the king of righteousness and peace. You saw that little thing with his name here. It talks about how he's the king of Salem, which is the king of peace because the word Salem means peace. And so he's, he's the king of Salem, but it's kind of like, well, he's kind of known as the king of peace also. But his name, Melchizedek, if you translate it, means king of righteousness. So he's kind of both. He's the king of peace, the king of righteousness. But this, that's not Melchizedek. That's just pointing us to Jesus, who is the true king of righteousness, who is the true prince of peace. That's who he is. That's who the prophets told he was going to be, and that's who he showed up. That's who he is. He is the source of righteousness and peace. He was completely righteous. That's why we can trust him. That's why what he did on the cross was effective for us because he was perfect and righteous. If you look back to the verse that was read, verse 26, it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, Jesus, who's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So you see what he's saying? It's like these, he's better than all the priests. Because all the priests had to, when they were going to make a sacrifice for the people, they had to first stop and make a sacrifice for their own sins because they were sinful people. They were just normal people like us. And then they'd make a sacrifice for their own sins and confess that. And then they would move in and they would make a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. Jesus didn't have to do that because he was holy. He was perfect. He was righteous. He was without sin. He didn't have to make a sacrifice for himself, and he didn't have to constantly make sacrifices because he offered himself as the perfect, righteous sacrifice for all sin. He did it once and for all as the great high priest. And so he's the king of righteousness. His righteous sacrifice satisfies the wrath of God towards all of us for our sins. And so he's the king of righteousness. And because of what he did, he offers us peace. In a world with, filled with conflict and strife and everything else, there's, there's only one true peace. And it's peace between us and God. And that is offered to us because of what Jesus did when he offered himself on the cross for us, when he sacrificed his life. He's the king of righteousness. And his righteous sacrifice provides peace between us and God where we didn't have any before. That's what Jesus does. That's what Melchizedek is pointing us to. He, Jesus is the true king of righteousness and the king of peace. And then it says here that he's our priest forever. He, he's forever, forever without end, the priest that we needed. And this is where it kind of gets confusing. So I want you to stay with me for a second. Back in verse 3, 
It says, he is without father or mother. He's talking about Melchizedek here, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And you're like, wait, what? Who is this guy? Was he, was he Jesus pre-incarnate? Like, what, what's going on here? And especially when you kind of consider that Genesis, there's a ton of genealogies here. Genealogies are a big deal. Like, we kind of want to know who begat who and who begat who and where they came from, whether, who their grandpa, who the mom and them are. Like, that's what Genesis tells us over and over again. Those genealogies have ruined a lot of New Year's resolutions, right? I'm going to read through the Bible this year. Oh, that's a long list of names. I think next year will be where, you know, that, that, that. I mean, there's so many genealogies. And here's Melchizedek. We don't have any genealogy on him. We don't have any background. We don't have anything after he exits the scene. And here's what, here's what this is saying. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is saying he's presented in Genesis as if he didn't have a genealogy. We know he did. He's just a man. But he's presented that way because he's pointing to Jesus. He's presented as if he never had a birthday and he never had an ending, never died, because he's pointing to Jesus who is eternal. And so he is, Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek because he is our priest forever. And that's why this, this passage actually makes sense on Easter Sunday. What are we celebrating on Easter Sunday? We're celebrating the fact that Jesus died, he was buried, and he's not in the grave anymore. He came out of the grave. He conquered death. He conquered the grave. And he's alive forever. That's what we're celebrating. He's a priest forever. And the writer of Hebrews keeps making this point. That's kind of the main point that he keeps saying. Melchizedek, priest forever, that's all about Jesus. If you go down to verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 7, Right before this, he's talking about how Jesus was from the line of Judah, the different tribes. He's not from Levi, and the Levites were the priests. And so the fact that he was from a different tribe and called a priest, that should like, okay, well, that's different. And so here's what he says about that, verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest, Jesus, arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Jesus has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning, concerning bodily descent. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not a descendant of Aaron. But he became a priest by the power of an indestructible life because he doesn't die. He lives forever. He's a priest forever. For it's witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So it seemed like Melchizedek didn't die. But he's just pointing to Jesus who lives forever. And all of our hope today is found in that. The whole story that we celebrate today, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, all that, his resurrection is where we find our hope. It's where we find everything that we need. It's the most important story, the greatest news ever told, that his grave is empty. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen, just like he said. That's what we celebrate. And when you stop and think about this and how Jesus is our priest forever, he's our king forever. We just sang that. He's forevermore our king. That's where the hope is found. Because he lives, we have hope. Because he lives, all of this begins to make sense. If he doesn't live, if he's still dead, this is a waste of time. This is a complete fabrication. It's just a waste. But because he lives, we know. We know he holds the future. 
And so because he lives, there's a couple things that I think we can say. In fact, it's really what the writer here seems to be building towards. All this talk about Melchizedek pointing to Jesus kind of comes to a culmination here in verses 23 through 25. And the first thing that it seems he says is because he lives, he saves us to the uttermost. Because Jesus lives, because he conquered the grave, he can save us to the uttermost. Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. There would be a priest. He would die. They have to get another priest. There's a lot of priests. But he, talking about Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. To save to the uttermost. Because he lives, he can save us to the uttermost. And I, I put that phrase in there so you'd write it down because it's not something we, we use a whole lot, that to the uttermost. Here's what it really means. He can save us and no one else can. No one else would do this for you. No one else could possibly even think about offering themselves like this for you. No one could do that. You can't do this for yourself. But Jesus offered himself and he saves us completely to the uttermost. He does what no one else can do. He saves us absolutely, completely. There's nothing left out. It's his death on the cross, when he took our place on that cross, he's taking the punishment for sin that you and I should have had to take. He's paying a penalty for sin that you and I should have had to pay, but we couldn't. And his death on the cross for us is more than sufficient to save us from our sin, to rescue us from that, to make us right with God. His death is saving us to the uttermost. Nothing's left undone. Everything we need is found in him. This idea that he saves us to the uttermost is also highlighting the fact that we needed that. The greatest problem that is in the world today is that we are separated from God because of our sin, that we have rebelled against God. We've said, I don't need you, God, and we've walked away from him. That's the ultimate problem. And there's all these other problems that we deal with, and they're real problems, but they're not ultimate. So the greatest problem that you deal with in the world today is not that life is hard or that marriage is a, is a challenge sometimes or parenting is ridiculous. Like that's not, the, that's not the greatest problem that we have in the world today. It's not an emotional problem. It's not a circumstantial problem. It's not a, the greatest problem in the world is that because of our sin, we were separated from a holy God forever, cut off, alienated, had no place to belong, had no future, had no hope in this world and beyond. But Jesus died in our place, and his death was sufficient to save us from all of that to the uttermost. His death on that cross brings us back right with God. We were cut off and alienated and separated, and he's brought us back near to God. We were enemies of God because of our sin, and now he has chosen to call us friends because of what Jesus did for us. We are family with him. We're children, sons and daughters of God because of Jesus. He saves us to the uttermost. In verse 22 of chapter 7, it says, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. All the old covenant was like, I'm going to just try hard and do the law and follow the law and hopefully that will be good enough. And he's like, no, here's the new covenant. You put your faith and trust in me and I've done it for you. I've done all the work for you. I promise to bless you and bring you to heaven. And he's the guarantee of that. His death on the cross provided everything we needed and his resurrection guarantees it. So we know. Like he's going to come through on his promises. Why? Because he's alive. Because he, he came out of the grave. He's, his body's not there. He's alive, and that guarantees all the promises of God to us because of his resurrection. And so because he lives, he saves us to the uttermost. 
And because he lives, he intercedes for us always. If you go back to verse 25, he says, He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So if Jesus is alive, where is he? The Bible says that he spent a few uh, weeks, maybe about 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection, teaching them, giving them the mission, and then he ascended to the Father. In Acts chapter 1, they actually saw him ascend to the Father. And now the Bible says that he's sitting at the right hand of God, in the throne room of God, at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus is sitting, and here's what he's doing. He's interceding for us, always interceding for us. That's what he's He's doing that, but he lives forever, so he's always doing that. Here's what that means. You have all the help that you need because Jesus is interceding for you. He's constantly pleading our case before God. He's given us access. The, the priest who goes before us, the forerunner who shows us the way and brings us and gives us access into the holy throne room of God. And now God listens to our prayers and our cries for help because Jesus is interceding for us. And so God is intervening and working in our life and responding to our prayers because Jesus made that possible and he's interceding for us. And so you have all the help that you could ever need because Jesus lives forever and he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. He's constantly, always, always giving us everything that we need. It may not be when we, need, when we think we need it or when we want it. Maybe, maybe not the way that we wanted him to answer it, but he promises to bless us. He's promised to intercede for us, and that's what he's doing forever because he's, he's alive. He lives forever. So what do you do with this truth? Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. He saves and helps those who draw near to God through him. Who is this for? Anyone who draws near to God through him. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross and only Jesus. That's, that's who gets to draw near to him. Maybe you're in this room today and you, it's been a while. Maybe you've kind of walked away from him for a while. Maybe it's been a few years that you haven't really thought about drawing near to God. You turn away from where the path you've been on and turn back to him and you find his arms wide open, ready to welcome you back. Because Jesus made the way where there was no way. When Jesus was here, he said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so turn to me. Anybody who draws near to God through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, not, hey, I'm going to try really hard to be a good person, and my parents are pretty religious, so I think I'll be okay, but no, no, no. I'm going to turn away from every effort, everything on my own, and I'm going to put my faith and trust only in Jesus and what he accomplished for me on the cross. That's where I'm going to rest. That's where I'm going I'm to put my faith and my life in his hands. Then you will find that he saves to the uttermost, and he helps constantly those who put their faith in him like that. Is that, is that you? Is that your story today? That you've put your faith and trust in him? If it's not, man, we would love to have a conversation with you. Because that's the story we tell on Easter, and it's the story we tell on every Sunday. Because it's the story of hope. That Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he came out of that grave to give us hope. And we know that we have hope for all eternity. There's a commentator, uh, Michael Kruger, that said in this book, Hebrews for You, he said it this way. And I thought it was just a great summary of this whole thing. He said, we are broken, sinful people who were separated from the holy God. And no ordinary priest, no earthly system, no animal sacrifice is enough to bridge that gap. That's where the gospel starts. We're broken, 
sinful people, and because of our sin, we're separated from a holy God, and we, there's nothing we can do to get back to him. There's no system or program or anything. There's nothing we can do to bridge the gap. What we need is the perfect son of God who became a human being to represent us before God as our great high priest forever. Because of his perfect obedience and his indestructible life, we can have great confidence that our sins are forgiven and therefore that we can draw near to God with confidence. Jesus made a way where there was no way. And he's alive today, alive forever, to guarantee that hope for all of us. And so we trust him. We, we, we don't drift. We, when we wander, we turn back quickly because we know he's better. There's nothing will ever give me what he can give. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to trust him. I'm going I'm to submit to him. I'm going to let him lead me. I'm going to put my faith in him, and I'm going to receive his blessing. I'm going to receive his help. I'm going to receive his guidance, and he saves all who put their faith in him. There's an old, old hymn, a great hymn. It says, says it this way. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. We celebrate that today. Let's pray and let's thank him for that. Jesus, we thank you today for this amazing story, the greatest news ever told. That you died as our substitute, taking the punishment that we should have had to take in our place. You were buried, but you didn't stay in the grave. You conquered it, and you, you're alive today. And Jesus, we thank you for that. We thank you that that is where all of our hope is found. And Jesus, if there's anybody in this room today that has not found that hope, has not placed their faith and trust in you, would you draw them to yourself today? Would you lead them to a conversation with somebody that can show them what that looks like and help them understand what it means to put their faith and trust only in you? God, thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to die for us, to bring us back to you. Help us to worship you in response to that truth. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.